for Sunday school, um, Romans chapter 8. Maybe you're wondering, okay, we finished James, what's next? Um, well, for the next three weeks, which it's going to feel like four weeks because we have the missions conference in there um, where we will have normal Sunday school next week. We'll have somebody special here. That's not me. Um, but for the next three normal Sunday schools, next four weeks, we're going to be talking about killing sin, about how to fight our sin. And I want to ground us just in Romans 8 for these um, next couple of weeks. So, so in Romans 8, at least in the first half of Romans chapter 8, Paul describes that there's two types of people in this world, right? There's those who are unbelievers, they are in the flesh. They're the natural man. They're the way that they were born. They, they exist in the natural state of sin. They love sin. They're defined by their sin. They, they do what they love. They do sin. Um, they do the deeds of the body or the deeds of the flesh. The things that come out of sin, that's what they do because that's who they are. They're marked by sin. And then he contrasts it with people who are not, you know, have a, have a nature based in sin, but their nature is based in the Holy Spirit. And they've received grace and mercy and life through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says those who have received Christ's righteousness will live out of Christ's righteousness, and they too will do what they love. Just like the sinner loved sin and did sin, the righteous one loves righteousness and does righteous deeds. He's transformed to be like Christ. This is, um, this is you know, coming right off the heels of what I taught at FDN a few weeks ago. There's no such thing as justification being saved that doesn't lead into sanctification those who have been given a new nature by christ will then live out of that new nature they're marked by grace and righteousness and these categories are completely separate right you can't be in both you can't have a nature in sin and a nature in righteousness they don't overlap so the argument of romans 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 is there's no Christian who delights in doing sin. Yes, Christians still sin, but we don't love it. We don't delight in it. We don't find joy in it. You can't delight in Christ and having your life marked by sin. It's one or the other. Grace doesn't mean you should continue in sin so that grace may abound, which leads to our text for this morning, which is Romans 8.13. One verse. Jeff inspired me with three verses. I said, that was a little bit long last week. Maybe that was two weeks ago. Let, let's just do one verse, but for three weeks. Um, <laughs> which Romans 8.13 reads like this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what the verse is saying is that those who walk in sin, that their life is marked by the flesh, by their sin, by those natural acts, you will die. You'll be condemned because living according to your sinful desires shows that your nature is in those sinful desires. It's evidence that you have not been saved by Jesus Christ. But on the flip side, if you walk according to the Spirit, that means through the Spirit's power, you're going to be putting to death 
those vestiges of sin, that, that remaining fleshiness in you, and you'll live. What I'm not saying is that if you do enough, you know, you do a good enough job to kill your sin, then Jesus will love you and save you. Because, I mean, how do we wage war on sin? From this verse, if you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and the Holy Spirit is only given to Christians, so this means if you are a Christian, then your act after being saved is to put to death the remaining sin within you. It's by the Holy Spirit. An unbeliever can't do this to earn his salvation. But if you do this, the result will be eternal life with God because the evidence of salvation is that you put to death the deeds of the body. The evidence of not being saved is that you live according to the deeds of the body. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you, will, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right, that's all I'm going to say about this verse for the next three weeks. And now we're going to spend 20, 35 minutes making application. And then after you know 35 minutes of application, we'll do two more weeks of applying this text to our lives. Because the principle makes sense. But, but we need to know, okay, so if we're in this war with the flesh, what kind of weapons do we have? How can we go about the fight? Uh, so, you know, I read a bunch. I made a list of 30-some weapons that we have to fight sin in our lives. And we're going to just start walking through as many of them as we can. So let's, uh, I'm going to pray for us again. And then we're going to get busy talking about how we can actually put to death the deeds of the flesh and kill our sin. So let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, hearing your word is easy. Putting it into practice, doing your word, as, as James told us, is difficult. We need your Holy Spirit to receive this and to do it. So Lord, I pray that you would work a miracle through these words that I'm about to speak, that you would work a miracle in our hearing so that we might use your Holy Spirit to kill the deeds of the flesh in our lives and live righteously for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, he has, a, he has a fantastic little book called The Great Divorce. Um, and, and kind of the, the, it's a, you know, it has a point. It's a, not like an allegory, but he writes for a reason. And the moral of the story is to show the great difference between heaven and hell. Um, in the introduction, he writes, If we insist on keeping hell or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven... We should not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. That is, if we want life, there's no room in our perfect life for these little pieces of death, for little pieces of sin, the things that we love here on earth. Um, so basically how the story goes is a bus pulls up in hell one day and it offers to take the people there, the ghosts they're referred to. He's, the bus offers to take them up to see heaven. And so several of the ghosts get on the bus and they drive up, I don't know what road you take, um, to heaven. And one by one, 
we see that it goes, get off the bus, stand in the fields outside of heaven's gate, look at it, see its beauty, and turn around and refuse to go in. Um, various reasons. Some of them are too proud to enter heaven. They say, you know what? I'm not willing to live based on somebody else's works. I would rather receive what I have earned in and of myself, even if that means living in hell, because I'm too proud to receive mercy and live in heaven. Um, others are ashamed. They don't want people to know them as they are, so they're, they're not willing to be vulnerable in heaven. They'd rather be, you know, hidden in hell. And in chapter 12, we run into a man who has this little lizard that's on his shoulder. Um, the lizard represents lust, his favorite sin. It's, it's like his pet. It's, it's there for him. He cares for it. He tends to its needs. And this lizard, this pet, is keeping him from passing through the gates of heaven. Uh, let, me, let me read a conversation between this ghost with a lizard and an angel who comes out in the field to meet him. Uh, Lewis writes, I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. And I caught sight of him, and he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. And it wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. He turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains of heaven. Off so soon, said a voice. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. This little chap, he, I, he and he, he indicated the lizard. I told him he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here. I, I realize that, but he won't stop. So I'm just going to have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, the angel asked him. Uh, a flaming spirit is what he looked like. Of course I would, said the ghost. Okay, I'll kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, no, 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 no. You're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill him? Well, that's a farther question. I'm open to considering it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing him because up here, he's just, he's so embarrassing. May I kill it, the angel asks. And for several pages, we go back and forth of, of the angel wanting to kill this man's sin and the man dodging and, you know, running around his questions, not giving a straight answer because he wants to avoid the issue. It's a struggle we all know, being justified Christians, yet still having this remnant of sin that clings so tightly that we love that's a pet. I mean, we want to get rid of our sin, but if we're really honest, we also don't, right? It's a comfort to us. It's a pet for us. It's, we know it. It brings us happiness. It brings us comfort. It's an old pal, right? But to have life, according to Romans 8.13, we need to take that sin out behind the barn and shoot it. Otherwise, it shows we love our sin so much that we will give up life in order to hold on to this little piece of death. If we live according to the flesh, we will die, but if by the Spirit, 
We put to death the deeds of the body. We will live. So it's a war we wage daily. What are our weapons that we have for this fight? Uh, I'm going to do four of them this morning. And actually, before we go there, um, let me have one more piece of introduction. Um, so I want to be as concrete as possible for these next couple weeks. I don't want to just speak in generalities. Um, I want to be precise and practical and helpful. But the, the difficulty is, if we think of that little lizard on our shoulder that we love, our favorite sin, every one of your sins is different. So I can't be really particular and also really generic at the same time. Um, so I'm going to speak generically, but I need you to hear me specifically. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to speak in general about sin. You need to know what sin I'm talking about for each one of you, right? So I need you to hear me talking in particular about your pet sin. Um, you know, we're, we're going for the jugular here. We, we want the sin that sits on our shoulder like the lizard. The Puritans, they would call this a besetting sin or a beloved sin. Um, Thomas Watson, one Puritan, writes, There's usually one sin that's the favorite, the sin which the heart is most fond of. If we would have peace in our souls, we must maintain a war against our favorite sin and never leave off until it's subdued. I don't know what your favorite sin is. I don't know if it's a lack of forgiveness or fear of man or gossip or lust or jealousy or judging others, an unwillingness to associate with the lowly, uh, slothfulness, laziness, self-indulgence, gluttony, pride, uh, biting speech, apathy and spiritual disciplines, being unwilling to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It could be a million different things. Everyone's besetting sin is different. I'm guessing, you know, you have it in your mind already. Um, but if you don't, let me just give you, you know, six kind of categories to hone us in, to bring our target into the site here. Um, here's six from Thomas Watson, again, his book, The Godly Man's Picture. He says, this is the sin that you don't like talked about, right? You're either relieved I just left it out of that list of ten sins, or you cringed when I heard, when I, when I spoke it, right? It, to speak of the sin is like touching a sore. Um, John the Baptist, right? He went out and he preached and he had a, you know, a flourishing ministry. But then when he touched on that one sin, uh, King Herod's incestuous relationship with Herodias, after he touched that one sin, his head ended up on a platter. It's the beloved sin. It's the one you don't want talked about. Or it's a sin that hits close to home, you know. Uh, it's a sin where your mind most easily wanders. You wake up in the morning, you have a bit of free time, and it's there. It's in your mind. It's calling out for you. It's a sin that most often gets you, right, that, that, that tempts you and succeeds. Uh, Watson again. There are some sins that a man can better resist. If they come for entertainment, he can easily put them off. But the bosom sin, it comes as a soother. And he cannot deny it, but is overcome by it. It's a sin you get defensive about. You justify it. Maybe other sins you freely admit, yes, I sin in this way, and this is wrong. But this one sin, you start to defend it. Maybe you even use the Bible to try and defend and justify your sin in this way. Uh, it's a sin that provokes your conscience. When I mentioned we'd be talking about fighting sin, it's the one, ooh, I hope we're not talking about 
that sin. Um, or Genesis 42. You remember Joseph's brothers? They come to Egypt during the famine, and they meet Joseph. They don't know it's him. And Joseph sends them home, but he says, to make sure your story stands true, you need to keep one of your brothers here in Egypt and the other Gosh, i got to do my math now. Nine of you go back, get Benjamin, and bring him here, and then I'll release the other brother. And the brothers say, this is because of what we did to our brother Joseph that this is happening. So many years later, it still provokes their conscience that that's the sin that's ruining their lives. What sin provokes your conscience? Or finally, it's a sin you're unwilling to give up. It's the most difficult to kill, right? When a, if you have a kingdom, you have, you have forts, you have outposts all around your kingdom. Maybe you let some of them on the outside get attacked when a, when a foreign enemy comes in. And you're willing to give up those outer forts. But when the enemy gets to your castle, then the king fights to the death to protect what's closest to home. You'll, you'll let those other sins out there die, but what's the sin that's so close to home that you will fight to the death to protect it? That's the sin we're talking about for the next few weeks. Um, let me read from Thomas Watson one more time. I have a lot of Puritans. Puritans just thought long and hard about sin, about you know how can we actually live out our lives in a way that kills it, that, that lives according to the, to the spirit. He writes, the besetting sin is of all others the most dangerous. As Samson's strength lay in his hair, so the strength of sin lies in this beloved sin. This is like a poison striking at the heart which brings death. A godly man will lay the axe of repentance to the sin and hew it down. He sets the sin like Uriah in the forefront of the battle so it may be slain. He will sacrifice this Isaac. He will pluck out this right eye so that he may see better to go to heaven. So I'm guessing we all have it. We, we, we know what sin we're talking about. Now the question is, what do we do to kill it? Um, I'm going to give you four strategies. I've already taken a lot of time introducing this, kind of identifying the sin. Um, but that's all good and necessary. So we'll do four this morning, and then in the two weeks that follow, we'll cram as many more strategies in as possible. Um, and these are strategies. These are weapons. They're not steps, right? It's not if you do one, two, three, four, then your sin's dead and everything's nice and easy. But rather, these are different kinds of weapons. Maybe you need a sword. Maybe you need an arrow. Maybe you need a candlestick or a lead pipe or whatever it is that you need to kill your sin. So I'm just kind of giving you a tour of the arsenal in this series. So, so weapon number one, use your own guilt to motivate you toward killing sin. Now, Guilt gets a bad rap these days, and I, and I get it, because we think guilt is opposite of the gospel. We want to be motivated by grace, not by guilt. And, and that's a good, you know, instinct to have, but guilt and grace don't have to be in opposition. Rather, what we want is our guilt to lead us to the grace of Jesus Christ, right? We're never going to fight our sin unless we see the sinfulness of it. It's not, you know, a bad habit like biting your nails. It, it's not just a minor inconvenience in their lives. This is the very thing that Jesus bled and died for. This is what killed Jesus. We need to see the guilt of it. 
I mean, what's the first rule of combat? I don't know who says this. It's probably somebody that I don't want to quote. The first rule of combat is to know your enemy. That's what we're trying to do right now. Um, we're trying to figure out who is this enemy that we're fighting. John Owen, another Puritan, he says that in order to properly kill your sin, first you need to get a clear and abiding sense upon your mind of the guilt, danger, and evil of that sin. We need what Romans 7.13 talks about, that our sin would be shown to be sinful and sinful beyond measure. So feel the weight of, of that sin. Feel the guilt of it. See how it pits you against your creator and your redeemer. Um, what we learned about in James chapter 4, for friendship with the world is enmity with God. But not only is there guilt in it, there's also danger and evil. I mean, sin's dangerous for several reasons. It clouds your judgment and your mind. It makes you do things you would never think that you could do. I mean, sin can even lead you to forsake the Lord so that you can indulge in your fleshly desire. Hebrews um, 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So sin lies to you. That lie makes you harden your heart, and that hard heart leads you to fall away from God. This sin, this besetting sin, this, this chap upon your shoulder, right, will take a soft heart that loves the Lord and slowly, without you noticing, put a scab over it. It will callous your soft heart towards God and give you a hard heart that refuses to hear the provoke of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> that, that refuses to hear from your brothers and sisters calling you back to the mercy and the grace of God. But even if it doesn't cause you to fall away from God, there's a danger of fatherly discipline, right? Even, even though God disciplines us out of love, nobody wants that. Nobody wants loving discipline. Discipline always hurts. And there's the danger of losing joy and fellowship and power in our life. Sin is dangerous. And sin is also evil, right? It grieves the spirit within us. So you take that guilt, the danger, the evil of sin, and then John Owen says, you load your conscience with the guilt of your besetting sin. Actually, let me, let me quote him at length here. It's, John Owen is if you have an intelligence of the level of mine, he is next to impossible to understand. Um, but I think, I think you'll get the point here. Um, this is from his book, The Mortification of, Spin, of, of Sin. And, and he writes, Look on him whom you have pierced and be in bitterness. Say to your soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love, to the Son for his blood, to the Holy Ghost for his grace? Do I thus give back to the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash, that the blessed Spirit has chosen to dwell in? And can I keep myself out of the dust? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? How should I hold up my head with any boldness before him? Do I count communion with him of so little value that for this vile lust's sake I have scarce left any room in my heart for him? How shall I escape if I neglect so great a salvation? 
In the meantime, what shall I say to the Lord? Love, mercy, grace, goodness, peace, joy, consolation. I've despised them all and esteemed them as a thing of naught that I might harbor a lust in my heart. Have I obtained a view of God's fatherly countenance that I might behold his face and provoke him to his face? Was my soul washed that room might be made for new defilements? Shall I endeavor to disappoint the end of the death of Christ? Shall I daily grieve the spirit whereby I am sealed for the day of redemption? Entertain your conscience daily with this treaty. See if it can stand before this aggravation of its guilt. If this make it not sink in some measure and melt, I fear your case is dangerous. But don't stop with guilt. Guilt is a good starting point to know our enemy. But then let your guilt point you to the one who forgives it, to Jesus Christ. Which brings us to strategy two, which is fight knowing that Jesus Christ is your ally, not your enemy in the war. Right? Admittedly, this seems at odds with what I just said, that, that our sin is enmity towards Jesus. But grace is often at odds with the way that we think. Um, we don't let our guilt drive us from Christ, but rather to him. I mean, if grace and Jesus Christ are at opposite ends, then if grace and guilt are at opposite ends, that's the way we want to do that. Think of your guilt like a like your kid's pullback car, right? We pull it back strong towards guilt, but then as soon as you let it go, it flies even faster towards grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so we load up our conscience with guilt so that we would want, run speedily to Christ. Killing sin, waging war on our sin. It's, it's an area that we often sell the power of the gospel short. We believe for some tragic reason that when we sin, Jesus scolds us, that he says, you know what? You were a miserable rat, but I saved you. So now that you're saved, clean yourself up so that I'll actually like you. I mean, right now, you're just a huge embarrassing failure in your sin. Start living up to the name that I called you to. Come, and then once you get there, come and talk to me. I saved you from hell. Start living like it. But that's not the gospel. Jesus isn't mad at us. He doesn't scold us. In the gospel, Jesus Christ welcomes us. He welcomes sinners, poor and needy. He's not the enemy of us in our sin. He is our ally. So we fight with Jesus, against him, not against Jesus. And we don't even just fight for Jesus. We fight with, not against, but with Christ as our ally. Hear me if you're a Christian. Your sins don't provoke wrath and anger and scolding from Jesus Christ. They provoke pity and love from Jesus Christ, right? Sin is, sin is a disease. When I stub my toe, I don't hate my toe. I comfort my toe, and I hate the furniture that I, that I hurt it on. I'm, I'm furious, but it's not at my toe. It's at the table, when, when Jesus' body, that you and I, the church, suffer, when we're afflicted with sin, he doesn't get mad at us. He comforts us. He's drawn to us. He's not pushed away from us. He is against our sin far more than we will ever be, but he is for us far more than we will ever be as well. 
Or to use another analogy, um, this is, who is this? Dane Ortland, uh, the book Gentle and Lowly. We have to understand this. When we consider the hatred a father has against a terrible disease afflicting his child, the father hates the disease while loving the child. Indeed, at some level, the presence of the disease draws out his heart toward the child all the more. So we fight in this truth and this power of the gospel, knowing that in it, Jesus is for us, not against us. He's our ally, not our enemy. This is the grace we've received. Um, I mean, I'm bringing in a lot of Puritans this morning. Here's another one. This is Thomas Goodwin who says, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by... Well, how would you feel in that sense, right? What makes Jesus joyful, happy, glorious? He says that Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, glory are increased and enlarged by his showing mercy and pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. Which means when you and Jesus stand side by side and fight your sins, that makes Jesus happy to help us in our weakness. He's not annoyed with us. He's not frustrated with us. He's not angry with us. No, he's glorified as we fight the sins that are an offense to him. He's our ally. His spirit is our power. So as we fight and as we fail continually, we're not led to despair by that. We're led to hope because Jesus is with us. He is our ally in the fight. Number three, desire for your sin to be killed. That seems like a throwaway one, right? If I'm only doing four this morning, why don't I, why don't I do something better than, hey, just want it killed? Um, it's almost shocking that it's a strategy, but we don't often do it. Um, I mean, to think back to that little pet lizard from Lewis's story, we love our sin. We coddle our sin. We, we, we enjoy it. We don't desire it dead. Um, but John Owen teaches us longing, breathing, and panting after deliverance is a grace in itself. It has a mighty power to conform the soul into the likeness of the thing longed after. Unless you long for deliverance, you shall not have it. It's amazing how God works through our desire. And so while, while it seems obvious, long for freedom from your sin, like, we need to do it, desire it. Don't him and haul like the ghost with a lizard, but desire it dead. Um, some of Jesus' questions in the gospel are fascinating to me. So in Mark chapter 10, there's this blind beggar sitting on the side of the road, and Jesus and his disciples walk by, and many, many people are telling this blind man to hush, but he's just crying out for Jesus. So he, he leaps up, and Jesus tells his disciples, hey, go bring, bring that blind man to me. And the guy's blind. Why he needs Jesus is obvious. But in Mark 10, 51, Jesus asked this question to him. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Why does Jesus ask that question? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. What is it that you want Jesus to do for you? Name it. Tell him that you desire for your sin to be killed. And going right along with that, last one for today, strategy four, pray, right? We're getting advanced now. 
pray against your sin. I mean, these are the basics of the Christian life, aren't they? But so often we need to be reminded of them. The blind man told Jesus what he wanted, and Jesus, in his kind compassion, then gave him exactly what he desired. He restored his sight. We need to do the same. We need to call out to Jesus and tell him what we want. I mean, do you ever just take time to talk to God about your sin? Do you pray against it? Do you persist in praying against the same sin, you know, seven times, 70 times, seven times. I mean, we've all failed enough to know that we can't do this on our own. But yet we often don't pray for God's help in it. Every single day, multiple times a day, pray for deliverance. Like the blind beggar, ask God for what you want. Ask God to kill the lizard, to kill the sin. Um, John MacArthur, now the Puritan, writes, he says, prayer is an effective and necessary means for heading off spiritual temptations before they can attack. Look at prayer as a preemptive strike against fleshliness by drawing us near to the Lord and focusing our thoughts on him. Prayer both steals us against the fleshly temptation and it weakens the temptations when they come. So pray against temptation. Pray for strength in the midst of it. Pray for success in fighting sin. Pray that you would understand the guilt, danger, and evil of your sin. Pray that your mind would think with the logic of grace, that even though I sin against Jesus, he is still not against me. He is for me because of his own blood. Pray because if we take seriously the warnings of Romans 8.13, we pray because our life depends on it. I mean, last week, Bobby taught us um, James 5.16, right? The prayer of a righteous man has great power. And in Jesus Christ, that righteous man, that, that's us. That's us who have received Jesus as our righteousness. Prayer may just be the battering ram that breaks down the door to your beloved sin's fortress. Do not neglect prayer in fighting your sin. All right, we have, we have a lot more to say, but we don't have the time to say it this morning. Um, but I think we have, have enough to keep us going for two weeks. So, so here's our homework for the next two weeks until we, fi- until we meet again. Um, not until we fight again. That's what you're doing as homework. Might describe some churches by the grace of God. It does not describe ours. Um, so here's our homework. If you haven't already, determined, determine what this beloved sin of yours is, what the sin is that we are fighting, um, your besetting beloved sin. Load up your conscience with the guilt of what that sin is, what it means about you and the Lord Jesus Christ. And even more so, load up yourself with the mercy of God with the love and gentleness and compassion and care of Jesus Christ, who fights with you, not against you, in your sin. Desire for it to be killed. Desire is a hard thing to muster up on your own. So even pray for the desire that you would kill your sin, that you would see this evil of it, and you would want it dead. And pray that the Lord would help you kill it. And uh, when we're back in two weeks, because, again, we have the missions conference next Sunday during Sunday school hour, um, I'll try and give us, you know, a big list of some more strategies that we can use in the fight. But um, let, me, let me pray for us to close this morning. Heavenly Father, um, this is a 
task that's too big for any of us to kill that which remains in us from our sinful flesh. Um, but you even tell us in Romans that it's not just us fighting in natural power, but we have the supernatural Holy Spirit living within us, and that if we put to death by the Spirit the deeds of the flesh, that we will live. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the love and the mercy and compassion of Jesus Christ, that we would receive his help in our times of need, that we would pray because of his, um, his sacrifice on the cross, that we would pray to you for power to fight sin, to pr fight temptation. That temptation would not come, that, um, that we would have desires against our sin. And I pray that you would be kind and merciful to grant us power that we might live pure and righteous lives for you, lives that show that we have been given a new nature, that we have been changed, that we have received power and grace and forgiveness from our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.